uh, this morning, we want to talk about uh, uh, Sukkot and specifically, mostly Sukkot in the Brit Hadasha, Sukkot in the, uh, in the New Covenant. So last night, we uh, talked about the holiday, basically giving an introduction. And we said that uh, Sukkot was a very prominent holiday in biblical times, right? It went from being an agricultural end of the year uh, festival of Thanksgiving to celebrating God's faithfulness to the Jewish people from the wilderness time uh, uh, forward. Uh, and uh, so we could say that it's a celebration of the presence of God among his people, really. Uh, and we talked about uh, the idea of the heavenly sukkah uh, and uh, how, this, how uh, uh, at Sukkot was the dedication of the temple. Uh, and even in Isaiah chapter 4, that uh, there would be the supernatural sukkah uh, of protecting uh, the people in the world to come. And then, of course, Zechariah's very famous uh, statement uh, uh, that Janet read in Zechariah 14 and 16, that of all the nations that are left will come to Jerusalem and celebrate Sukkot. It will be an end time uh, celebration because it is a feast of conclusion, which is what we talked about uh, all uh, last evening. Now, when we come to the new covenant, though, when we come to the Brit Hadashah scriptures, you know, there are some who believe that Yeshua was born at Sukkot. There's no uh, proof of that. It's an opinion. You can infer it. But that's just kind of uh, interesting, I think, uh, that uh, perhaps Yeshua was born at Sukkot. But uh, there are several passages in the Brit Hadashah that uh, uh, do talk about Sukkot. And uh, uh, one or two of them are actually, uh, you wouldn't know it unless you knew something about the holiday and something maybe even about Jewish tradition. So in the Gospel of Matthew, in uh, chapter uh, 17, That is what we are often referred to as the transfiguration of, uh, of Yeshua. So it says here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 17, and six days later, Yeshua took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. So here is Yeshua in his glorified body uh, ahead of time. You know, this was uh, quite, the, uh, quite the scene. And then it says, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Isn't that a great statement? Lord, it is good for us to be here. Uh, if you wish, I will make three Sukkot here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, what's interesting about this passage 
uh, is that, first of all, Moses and Elijah appear. Do you remember last night we had a little, uh, there was a prayer or a, yes, a little prayer. That's called Ush Pizin. And that is a prayer where you're inviting the Jewish luminaries from ages past to come and enter your sukkah. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Elijah, and others, Moses, uh, you know, uh, to, to enter and be in your sukkah. And the idea is, is that inviting people, inviting holy ones in. And of course, in our uh, rendition of it, we invite Yeshua into, you know, into our sukkah. But it is interesting that Moses and Elijah show up. And so this leads Peter. It's very interesting that Peter, he has this understanding. There's a cloud. There's Moses. There's Elijah. You know, the heavenly, the heavenly sukkah. And here are the Jewish patriarchs and prophets to invite them into the sukkah. So Peter acknowledges. He recognized, Lord, it is good that we are here. Let me build sukkahs, you know? And, uh, and clearly, we see the end-time understanding of Sukkot here in the Mount of Transfiguration event, that uh, Peter understood that uh, the holiday of Sukkot was not just about remembering the wilderness wanderings and not just an end-of-the-year uh, festival of ingathering of fruit and being thankful to God, uh, and not just a covenant renewal event uh, like we read about in Deuteronomy 31. But by the time you get to the end of the Second Temple period, there's already this unfolding of understanding that there is a heavenly sukkah, that there is an end time aspect of Sukkot. And I will suggest this goes all the way back even before the Babylonian captivity, because when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 4, it talks about a sukkah covering the earth. He's already taking it as a metaphor of the, of the presence of God covering the earth. And Sukkot clearly has this end time meaning. And that is how Peter uh, understood it. You know, we also read in the book of Revelation, if you go to Revelation chapter 7, another vision, we might say, of Sukkot at the end. And it's in a very interesting place. In the seventh chapter of uh, uh, Revelation, you read there about the famous, the famous 144,000, uh, right, uh, of, uh, you know, of, uh, of Israel from the, from the 12 tribes. And it's interesting, right after that, in verse 9 of Revelation chapter uh, 7, it says, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hand. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all of the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped uh, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, 
who are they and from where have they come? And I said, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made themselves white in the blood of the lamb. Right? Uh, and, uh, and then it says, uh, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his sukkah over them. That heavenly sukkah again, like we read in Isaiah chapter four and what the sages of Israel alluded to all the way back in uh, Leviticus chapter 23 about dwelling in sukkahs, uh, the sukkah of faith, the heavenly sukkah. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and their guide, uh, and shall guide them to the springs of the water of life. We're, we're going to come back to this, to the water of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from them. So you see the water of life, you see the sukkah, you see palm branches, you see 12 tribes of Israel, you see people from every uh, language, uh, every place, every peoples that you see. And doesn't that remind you of Zechariah chapter 14, when all the nations who are left, who have come through the great tribulation, all who are left will come to Jerusalem and worship the king. I indeed the Lord of the Lord of hosts. You know, then in chapter 21 of Revelation, we read John seeing the new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Remember last night in Isaiah chapter 4, the chuppah? And the sukkah, right? Uh, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the sukkah of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. The sukkah of God is among men. Indeed, the culmination of all of history, the a consummation of the plan of God. And doesn't that remind you of what you read in John, the Gospel of John, in uh, chapter 1, in verse 14, I believe, where we read, He came to dwell among, uh, yes, and the Word became flesh, and you could say as a verb, among us, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Yeshua is the sukkah uh, of God. And uh, it is amazing just uh, how prevalent Sukkot is when we uh, think about uh, Yeshua. So he is indeed the very presence of God in this world of the outward visible sukkah, the flimsy structure the, of, uh, of our lives, of this world. And, and as you dwell in your sukkah, the sukkah you see is flimsy and can be blown down, but not the sukkah of God. He indeed always dwells with us. 
But we all know, if you have been around the block a few times when it comes to Sukkot in the Bible, you know that it is in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John where we have really the essential passage of Sukkot. And it is quite clear in verse 2, it says, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. No questioning which holiday it was. It was definitely uh, uh, Sukkot. Okay? And, I, you know, someday we'll actually read all the intervening verses. <laughs> but in verse 37, uh, this is where we read very famously, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The last day of the feast is the seventh day. The seventh day is called Hoshana Rabbah, Lord save us. Okay? Now, every day on Sukkot, if you were to go to a, the Shacharit, for example, the Shacharit morning service in a, an Orthodox synagogue, perhaps also a conservative and reformed synagogue, perhaps, but for sure in an Orthodox synagogue, people would arrive with their lulavs and etrogs in hand. In fact, you can even get like a little case for your lulav and etrog. You know what I mean? You keep the case year after year, of course. You have to get a new lulav and etrog every year, uh, like a little carrying case. It's very interesting. Uh, and in the shacharit service, on, in those, um, on the Sukkot morning service, you make seven circuits around the bima. Uh, uh, for example, most synagogues have their, the Aron HaKodesh, the Ark, is like built in to the wall right in the front. And people would like, you know how we walk around with the Torah, right? Well, you would do that with your Lulav and Etro seven times uh, every day, okay? Uh, now, on, on the seventh day, on Hoshana Rabbah, not only... Not only do you walk around with the lulav and etrog, but actually, in some synagogues, you actually like beat it on the ground, okay, like so. And what you're doing on that day, uh, there are a number of meanings that converge at the very end of Sukkot. One is a prayer for rain, no doubt, prayers for rain. Also on Shmini Atzeres, very famously, prayers for rain. But on the seventh day, what is most uh, prevalent is a prayer for deliverance. Because the way it is understood since Second Temple times, very important to understand that this is what was going on when on the, on the last day, the great day of the feast in Yeshua's day in the temple. That it was believed that by the time you got to the end of Sukkot, if your name was not yet written in the book of life, this was like the last chance uh, on the seventh day on Hoshana Rabbah. And so uh, there would be multitudes of prayers for deliverance. Now in my, uh, in my Sukkot Machzor for Hoshana Rabbah, we read, open the gates of heaven and your goodly treasure trove. It's not great. Uh, you, may you open for us. Save us 
Do not let accusations be drawn out. Save us, God of our salvation. The strength of your salvation comes. A voice, my beloved. Behold, he comes. Uh, and we just read uh, all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of prayers for pardoning iniquity, saving us. And then uh, you have this refrain, Hoshiano Elohe Yeshenu. Hoshiano Elohe Yeshenu. So save us, God of our salvation. Uh, and uh, and it, so it is really, uh, uh, you know, very, very interesting. Now, uh, there's also the sense, not only deliver us right now, but bring your ultimate deliverance uh, 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 to us, you know? Uh, and so it is uh, quite interesting because when you read in the Tanakh uh, about the, uh, about pouring and, and about uh, the end and about God blessing the land and uh, pouring out water on the land, we know that God blesses the land, you know, when the people uh, repent, right? And so if this uh, idea of uh, repentance uh, and water and God giving us our sustenance. Now, what did during the second temple times, what did they do in the temple while it was there? And many of you are familiar with this. It's become kind of famous, right? The water drawing ceremony. Uh, and so on the seventh day, they would be marching around with the, with the uh, lulabs, you know, with the palm branches and the myrtle and the willow. And they would be singing Psalm 118. And they would be going down to the pool of Siloam with golden pitchers and coming back and pouring water uh, uh, over the uh, altar. Some other sources say wine as well, uh, uh, as in, in, in addition to the, uh, to, to the water. Uh, and it was like this prayer of God, fill us up, you know, give us our, our, our uh, sustenance. And uh, very interesting, uh, because it's called the water drawing ceremony. It was a libation. There was this focus on water, this focus on water. Now, uh, Yeshua, like we said in John 7, in uh, verse uh, 37, he's, and he goes on to say, in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now, this idea of Maim Chaim is very interesting uh, in the Bible. In the Bible, if you look in, for example, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we read this indictment, right? Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 2, in verse 13, he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of Mayim Chaim, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold uh, no water. You know, he's kind of making, he's being sarcastic in a way. He's saying that doesn't make any sense. Why would you try to make cisterns that can't hold water? Why would you do that? It kind of doesn't make sense. 
But look what my people have done. They're blinded. They don't even understand that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now, isn't it interesting when you read that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and then read in the Gospel of John, uh, in the seventh uh, uh, chapter, he said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me. He who believes in me from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In Jeremiah chapter 2, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Living waters means life. The fountain of life. Uh, the fountain of life everlasting. The fountain of a robust, meaningful life in this world and forever in the world to come. We also read in Jeremiah chapter 17. These words. In verses uh, 13 and 14. O oh Lord, the hope of Israel. And you know what's kind of interesting? You know, uh, in Hebrew, when it says the hope of Israel, it's mikvah Yisrael. Here. Isn't that interesting? Mikvah Yisrael. Mikvah is the name of the water that you go into when you are immersed. The mikvah. We go to the mikvah to be immersed. Right? Isn't that fascinating? Uh, and so uh, we read here, O oh Lord, the mikvat Yisrael. What's kind of interesting is that most Messianic congregations that go by this kind of name go by tikvat Yisrael. Uh, although here it's mikvat Yisrael, uh, the hope of Israel. All who forsake thee will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken, again, you have the same thing as in Chapter 2, they have forsaken the fountain of living waters, even the Lord. And then it says, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for thou art my praise. And so there, uh, you know, there you see uh, the mikvat Yisrael, the hope of Israel. That's who God is. And he is the provider of living waters, living waters of life. Then in Zechariah chapter 14, we read about it, right? You're familiar with that, that in that day when the Lord returns and the, and the uh, Mount of Olives is, uh, uh, is split in two, uh, that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Clearly a statement of God being the you know, fulfilling uh, his promises and uh, the fact that there will never be night and God will, his presence will be, you know, everywhere. So out living water, uh, he's the source and living water uh, indeed uh, flows uh, out, uh, as it says, out of the city of Jerusalem in verse eight. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And we could say that the physical reality of that 
is a demonstration of, a, of the invisible reality of that of the presence of God. And this is uh, uh, not taken lightly by our sages. And you know, there's actually another uh, location here in Ezekiel chapter 46. In Ezekiel 46, and uh, in rabbinic literature, this is uh, very much tied in to the future and to Sukkot. Uh, it says here, uh, thus says the Lord God, the gate of the inner, this is a vision that Ezekiel has, and it covers the end, the whole end of the book of Ezekiel, of this temple that is the size of Jerusalem. And isn't it interesting that living waters flow out of Jerusalem, we read in Zechariah. But then you have this temple whose dimensions are this, really the size of, uh, of, uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, it, it goes on to talk here about water uh, coming out of underneath this, uh, coming out of the underneath of this, uh, of this temple. Uh, and so you can read that on your own, but that is uh, absolutely, uh, you know, absolutely fascinating here where we read uh, indeed about, uh, you know, about this water. So now, Getting back to uh, the, uh, well, actually, there's some other, other uh, statements as well. But actually, back in uh, John chapter 7. So when Yeshua says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And taking into consideration the fact that they were praying for deliverance. Hoshana Rabbah, Hoshana Rabbah, save us, Lord. And pouring the water and understanding that there was an end time view of, of Sukkot, that here Yeshua, we could say, has the audacity to stand up and say, I am the one who gives you the living water. I am the fountain of living uh, waters. And so then uh, we read in verse 39, John writes this. It's like the narrator, but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Now, interestingly, uh, if uh, we go back to uh, Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 44. In Isaiah chapter 44, in verse 3, we read, For I will pour out water over the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Clearly, Yeshua is identifying with all of this, pouring out the water, pouring out the Spirit. So isn't it interesting, in Isaiah 44, water pouring and the pouring out of the Ruach are understood, uh, you know, in the, same, in, the, in, the very same, uh, in the very same context. Back in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, we read uh, in verse 
25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And then very uh, interestingly in the book of Joel, and this is very important because Peter will quote it when the Ruach is poured out in Acts, uh, in Acts uh, uh, chapter, uh, in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Joel says in Joel chapter 2, in verse 28, And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And uh, he goes uh, and he goes on. In verse 32, it says, And it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. And so this pouring out of the spirit. And it's interesting that you read this kind of terminology in the uh, New Covenant. Just to save some time, in Acts uh, chapter 10, uh, in fact, we were just there not too long ago, right? In Acts uh, chapter 10, in verse 45. I notice what Peter says. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Ruach, the gift of the Holy Spirit had been what? Poured out, poured out on the Gentiles also. In Romans, the book of Romans, in the fifth chapter, right? I, we read there in verse 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then finally, uh, in uh, the uh, book of Titus, okay, in the book of Titus, uh, in the third uh, chapter there, see why it's so important to know where all the books are in the Bible, right? In Titus chapter 3, uh, we read there in verses 5 and 6. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of the regeneration and the renewing by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly, richly through Messiah Yeshua, our Savior. And so this idea of being poured out. Uh, and and uh, we see that it comes from the Tanakh. Then Yeshua himself in John speaks of this living water even before chapter 7 because we read about it in chapter 4, right? In chapter 4 of uh, John in verses 10 and 11, right? We have, uh, uh, we have here... John chapter 4, when he's speaking to the woman, he says this, the Samaritan woman. Yeshua answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water. 
And so here to the Samaritan woman, he says, I am the source of life. Not just water to quench your thirst for this moment, but living water. And she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And he says, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Yeshua answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give shall never thirst. But the water that I give shall become to in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so here in John chapter 7, Yeshua is saying, I am, I am the fountain of living waters. You trust in me. And so this is a statement where he is saying, uh, you know, I am the uh, I am the Messiah. I am the one whom you uh, are uh, have been uh, uh, looking for. I am the one who gives you life everlasting. And this he says on Hoshana Rabbah, you know, on Sukkot. And it's interesting, the reaction of the people, right? Some of the multitude, when they heard these, well, there was confusion. That's the point. There was confusion when he says this. Some are saying he's the prophet, like the prophet from Deuteronomy, another Moses, you know. Others were saying this is the Messiah. Others were saying, wait a minute, how can he be the Messiah if he comes from Galilee? That doesn't even make any sense, right? Uh, and then uh, 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 we read here that uh, in verse 46, the officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. You know, and, uh, and so uh, by Yeshua saying this, to many of them, he was a, a blasphemer. How could he say that, that he is the one who provides this living water? But the fact is, is that indeed is who Yeshua is. He is the one who gives us the living water. I, for many of us, you know, we drink out of cisterns that hold no water. We try to find satisfaction all over the place, right? And, and that is the idea of dwelling in a sukkah, because when you dwell in a sukkah, we're, we're taking away all of the things in life that we think will give us satisfaction, our nice home, our security and all that. And we're living in a tenuous, we force ourselves in a way symbolically, you know, to live in our little sukkah or to eat a meal in our little sukkah. And what we're doing is we're saying, you know, I'm identifying with my ancestors uh, and our real hope is in God. And, you know, we live in a culture and we live in a place where it's hard for us sometimes, depending on our lifestyle and where we live, it's hard for us to really trust God because we've never really been persecuted. We've never really lost everything. Now, some have, of course, but the vast majority of us uh, have not. But when you go back and you look in Jewish history, Jewish history is always very tenuous. It's only in recent years that there has been any sense of security. Uh, and so it is very important that we indeed 
find our joy, our peace, our satisfaction in the sukkah of God, in Yeshua, the sukkah of God. And he is indeed our refuge. He is our shelter. He is our hope. Uh, and he is the one who gives us satisfaction. And that's something that has to be cultivated. It's one thing to preach it and say it. It's another thing to live it. How do we cultivate it? How do we cultivate this kind of, of thirst? May I suggest that we really focus and place high priority on being in the Word of God, uh, place higher priority on, uh, be, you know, on, on our prayer life, and taking the initiative ourselves for these things, and not just coming to the service and it all sounds good, but taking the initiative ourselves. And uh, you know what's kind of interesting is, where do we find uh, the most growth that ever takes place in our lives? It takes place, it's forged in difficulty. And so in Romans chapter 5, we do read here uh, that uh, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts via the Ruach HaKodesh who is given to us. While we're helpless, while we're enemies, when we're in trouble, God has shown up uh, for us. And, uh, and so on this Sukkot, while we live in a world that's topsy-turvy and all kinds of things have taken place, may we drink from the wells of salvation. You know, may we find our satisfaction and peace in God. And if we're having a hard time with that, pray. Lord, help me to develop a thirst for you. Help me, Lord, to develop a thirst for you. For that is indeed who Yeshua is. Indeed, the fountain of living water. We don't have time to talk about chapter 8 and the, uh, you know, when Yeshua says, I'm the light of the world, uh, that will save that for another message. Uh, but, uh, or maybe in our Torah study, we'll mention it today. But uh, th this is why Sukkot is so powerful when we talk about knowing Yeshua. He is indeed the fountain of living water. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for those who are listening or watching today and maybe encountering this kind of, this kind of teaching for the first time. Lord, I pray, God, that if we are really thirsty, thirsty for assurance, thirsty for uh, satisfaction in our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would turn to you. For you say, when we seek you, we will indeed find you. And so, God, I just pray, God, that we would have our thirst quenched, Lord, uh, in Messiah Yeshua. He has poured out his ruach and dwells within us. We thank you and we pray in Messiah's name.